0: Welcome to the Shack15 Conversations podcast, where we invite founders, innovators, and changemakers to share ideas with the community, speak to the experience of building their businesses and unlock some of the hard-earned wisdom collected along the way. In this episode, we'll join our moderator, Jennifer Lujan, Director of Social Impact at Ease, who is actively steering her company toward more equitable and responsible outcomes for underrepresented entrepreneurs and communities directly affected by America's age-old war on drugs. Jennifer will lead us in conversation with the pioneers at the intersection of cannabis and technology, addressing how both have a key role to play in community equity. Joining the conversation, we've got Chris Emerson, founder and CEO of Level, the science-focused research, education, and product creation lab designed to provide better access to good product by empowering consumers to make informed decisions with their dollar. We also welcome David Hua, co-founder and CEO of Meadow, the industry-specific POS and e-commerce platform that enables cannabis dispensaries and delivery companies to operate consistently and effectively amid a rapidly evolving ecosystem and Emily Paxia, co-founder and managing partner of Poseidon Asset Management, a prominent player in the cannabis investment space who brings with her a unique global perspective of the current opportunities and challenges faced by companies pioneering the cannabis space. Enjoy.
1: Thanks guys, and thank you to Shack15 for organizing this discussion and for everyone joining today. Great topic to many people Adult use cannabis has now been legal for a couple of years now, and it's been quite the roller coaster. I'm pretty sure all of the panelists here have had to deal with many pivots in the industry in the past couple of years. And so, although it's not um, federally legal since this global pandemic of COVID 19, Some states, including California, have deemed cannabis an essential business, which says a lot, really saying that patients depend on their medicine. And so we hope that this will move the needle on the federal side. All the panelists here are some of the most knowledgeable people in the industry across all areas. Um, We have software, investment, um, and an operator who is also one of the best biochemists that I know. Also a shout out to Barat, who's probably joined in on this call for curating such a, a great panel today. So yeah, let's dive in. So we've started to really see technology shape the industry, obviously being here in San Francisco in the Bay Area, it's definitely taken a role. You know, What role do you guys see this playing in the industry and how is it different from other CPG spaces? Um, Hua, I would love to start off with you. I know you have a background in tech before starting Meadow, and I think you were probably the first cannabis company to get a Crunchy Award too. So would love your perspective on this.
2: Yeah, uh, exciting times. Thanks for for having us here. You know, cannabis, especially at least in San Francisco, it's been here for a while with Prop 215. And uh, I think that transition period, that kind of when we came in uh, 2014 era, a lot of the things that we talked about uh, back then were around record keeping being considered evidence. Huge disparity between uh, where we are now and where every single gram is tracked uh, and has to be kept in records for, for seven years. Uh, so even with the short period of time that those jumps are happening and whether you can keep up with uh, the compliance, whether you can keep up with adapting and innovation, it's, uh, it's pretty hard. It's, it's like Ninja Warrior out there, compiled within like, I don't know if you remember that gladiator scene where everyone's in the arena, it, just, it can get pretty crazy. But I think that for us building technology, it was really just talking as closely as you can with these dispensary owners, trying to understand the regulations as much as possible, to find good investment partners and you know, build. And so what's interesting now is technology is helping everything within this COVID era. And massive shifts that, an acceleration in adoption that we've seen um, in e-commerce, in delivery, and all of these pieces that I think we luckily uh, have built for. But it goes to show you, like things can change on a dime here.
1: There's definitely been a lot of that evolution. I mean, you know, Emily, what have you seen on your end? I mean, you've seen you've seen it change significantly, and I'm sure you're presented with many, a lot of different innovation.
3: Right. I mean, one of the things that started us off when we invested into the industry and invested into companies actually like Meadow um, was when we started exploring what it would be like to be a consumer in cannabis and seeing these operators that were really trying to take it to the next level and trying to make it more accessible to people who maybe had a misunderstanding around cannabis or were fearful because of all of the stigma from the war on drugs. And we saw the operators trying to create these wonderful spaces these retail brick and mortar spaces that were inviting and encouraging for people to come in and have a conversation and learn about the product Um, but we saw that they didn't have really great technical resources or technological resources to support their efforts and one of the things that when covid happened our thesis shifted quite a bit in that we knew that person to person interaction would really help to educate and inform consumers about the types of products and, and the dosage of the products that would be best for them, but that they would have to ship to this digital experience. And I'd come from a space of consulting and I'd seen consumer behavior shift drastically to e-commerce where people thought maybe it wouldn't even be possible that you could purchase a pair of sunglasses over the internet, because how would you know if they would fit? Well, Thanks to technology, we've come up with a lot of solutions to really make this a lot easier and more accessible. And the consumer experience has been good, otherwise it wouldn't have shifted so much over to the e-commerce world. Well, I think cannabis is learning very quickly how to communicate with consumers and how to leverage technology like Meadow and like some of these other platforms that exist to become educated on the products and also to engage more in the different products that exist. And I think it comes down to everything across the supply chain. As Hua was mentioning, there's the technology that helps you to know that it's tracked and traced throughout the system and that it's safe and that it's tested so you can understand the potency of the products. And then it goes all the way through to the marketing and being able to target people that are more interested in certain categories of the products. Or like me, I'm a lower dosage consumer so it's important that I'm I'm a target for those lower dosage products so that I can find them and discover them and so this is a whole new realm for cannabis and I'm frankly really excited about it because one thing I know about our industry is that when the challenge gets thrown in front of us we rise to the occasion and we push forward and so I while I do think that brick and mortar will remain very important. I actually think there could be really some great um, technology around that experience. And I think that product companies are going to figure out how to engage in in many different ways. You know, I mean, you bring up a good point
1: um, in terms of understanding and learning from the data that we are collecting from a lot of the technology and from these platforms. There's We've learned, obviously, through this, there's a ton of science and involved in transforming cannabis into form factors that people can relate to. We've seen, we, we've been working with many different cannabinoids. Um, and so, you know, obviously, Chris, um, with Level, you guys were one of the first products to come out and be able to use um, a lot of these different cannabinoids. What could you say more about where do you think the space is headed in terms of flowers and edibles and concentrates and beverages?
4: Uh, Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. First and foremost, you know, we, we work in manufactured products. So I think uh, smoking is always going to be a huge part of, or, you know, consumption through inhalation is always going to be a large portion of the industry for product types. Um, Cannabis is really, it came up through community and connecting with people. It's ritualistic and sharing uh, through inhalation so flower will always i think be a really interesting product class especially with where genetics is moving and how advanced it's getting especially as we start to leverage a lot of the technologies um, you know when you start looking at um you know you can do rna seeks on it you can look at the genomes you can really start to pinpoint how you want to change the genetics of the plant i think same thing for vapes you extract it you can get to really interesting formulations that way as well um, you know for us when we look at what we consider the new consumer or cannabis 2.0 or 3.0, it is, you know, it's effects based or targeted effects from cannabis. And you arrive at that by getting to ratios that you can't access from the plant alone. And so to do that, you have to isolate different cannabinoids and reformulate them in ways you want them um, to go. And also you need form factors that necessarily aren't what was traditional in cannabis. So as edibles move away from cookies or brownies where you didn't know what the potencies were. Now we know what the potencies are, but people want to move away from potentially sugary snacks or, or high calorie content so they can get um, medicine or their recreational cannabis that you look at different form factors. And so, you know, one thing we focus on are uh, tablets um, and different routes of administration that you can do these unique formulations for the consumer. And there's a lot of different reasons for it. It can be discreet. It can, uh, you know, you can use high value compounds to get to formulations and get them on market so you can test it and so these things are important in trying to move forward what kind of products people are going to want and it's kind of like the the adage that people like to say someone's going to walk in and say I want a faster horse and you're like no you want a car or you want a plane and so that's kind of where we're trying to drive the industry and it takes a ton of education uh, and it takes a lot of Patients and a lot of data to come back, so we can sift through the noise of what all that is. And that's where individuals and companies like Meadow and what Emily and her company are doing—they're helping build this infrastructure, so operators such as us can really get the signal out of this noise and figure out how do we change the direction or or amplify the direction we're moving to get to new product classes to really bring cannabis into this new consumption idea, change the luxury, you know—the the idea of cannabis consumption. So.
2: Hey Chris, the, um, I don't know if you remember this, but when we were at MJ Biz in November, uh, you uh, gave me a little sample of your the THCV gum, mm-hmm. and I just remember like, what is this? Like, and we were like hanging out at the Doug's Baron booth, and we were like, oh, this is like THCV, and it was like three o'clock in the morning. It was like Vegas. We're at the like, the tables, and I. I start eating it and then i got on a roll i was like energized <laughs> at three in the morning with this bubble gum i'm like chris what did you give me it was it was amazing
3: that was cool
2: and i was yeah. so i was like getting high like playing craps with his gum that like you know it, it was awesome so it's that's awesome yeah thanks for sharing that
1: <laughs> yeah i have to also give i mean i know that um you know, Chris, you've always been a huge uh, donor for compassionate care. And mm. a lot of those products were simply like, you know, huge um, and very healing for a lot of patients. So um, definitely appreciate the play of like how, how thoughtful you've been in creating those products. Um, Thank you. I mean, you obviously see from your end, a lot of trends about, you know, with flowers and edibles and concentrates um where do you see where do you see a lot of the interest lie from a con- consumer standpoint like wh- what trends are you seeing
2: yeah I mean, we're the you know, people are, are at home uh basket sizes are getting bigger uh you know we saw two huge spikes one when the shelter in place was happening and 420 a <laughs> month of 420 was amazing uh, everyone i think it was uh, a <laughs> almost getting high at home uh so edibles beverages we're seeing that uh, Come through. We're also seeing like a differentiation on flower, like top shelf and value. You're really starting to get you know the the mid tier is kind of going away a bit. Um, so premium flower uh, is still in, in good command. Um, but I think from a from a retail delivery side, we saw a 25% shift in revenue generated from in store to e-commerce and e-commerce being pick up curbside pickup and delivery uh so that convenience factor and meeting the consumer of like what they need to buy um the the interesting thing is uh, the bud tender connection has been a bit disconnected so brands their own websites so people are browsing they're they're going and checking out you know instagram and all these different things to figure out what to buy Uh, they still don't you know necessarily know that um yeah so that's some of the stuff we're, we're seeing so far
3: you know what I think though? It's interesting who it is like, I th- I think in a way it could democratize how brands communicate with people if they don't, you know, I mean, there's always been a little for a new brand to establish a relationship where the bud tender understands them. That's always been a process and it's, it's been very beneficial when brands can, but I think sometimes maybe it allows for some interesting innovation and in launching of new products that it's a tough time to launch a new product. Let's be oh, real. Yeah. But But,
2: yeah, but what was interesting. Maybe that's
3: my hopeful side of of technology for brand. Yeah. Well, we're
2: also seeing a trend of uh, dispensaries buying equity products.
3: Yeah. So social Mm -hmm. equity and stocking
2: your shelf with equity. Um, I mean, we have 10 counties in the state that have programs. We have people up and running that are operating and and getting product. Uh, Unfortunately, with some of the robberies that happened that hit a, a bunch of operators, both equity and non. You had demand finally, but then like didn't have the supply to kind of back it up. Mm -hmm. And so it's a weird dichotomy, too, because uh, people are on a budget now. They they really want to to make sure they're getting value. And we're seeing a a bit of supply constraint on some of the flour and other things that should be more should be easier to access. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, we need we need more cannabis.
3: We do. (laughs) I <laughs> didn't think we'd be here in 2020 in California needing more, but we do.
2: We need way more.
3: We need, we need way more. Yeah. Um, and that kind of like
1: really rolls in, you know, you mentioned about social equity and sort of to kind of give a, a high level view for folks, um, you know, from the consumer standpoint, one of the things we often don't think about is that there's been this huge disconnect. You know, people are going and ordering, you know, cannabis online or before these to go to dispensaries or online and then be able to get some pre-rolls or edibles, go to a party. Um, and yet there's this disconnect that there's still so many people who are paying the price for merely something like possession of of yep. cannabis and it's destroyed their life. You know, people um, are not unable to get employment, um, not able to get housing or that financial aid as a student. Um, and some people are even in prison still for this. Um, so this really has specifically impacted a lot of our black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Hua just mentioned, you know, a lot of local governments have started these social equity programs to help address this issue. Um, but I'm interested to hear what role companies, um, in your companies and what you guys are doing play in the social justice aspect and the impacts, uh, from the war on drugs.
3: I mean, I'll, I'll just jump in. It was something that's always, um, it has not felt great to get into this space and, and try to, uh, especially on the investor side, we're acutely aware of what it means to raise and deploy money and the privilege that that is to be able to do that and to stand on the shoulders of people who've been incarcerated for nonviolent drug offenses related to cannabis is just, it doesn't sit right and it shouldn't sit right for anybody who's in this space. And I I call to task every single investor in this industry to think about that. Um, Very early on, we started leaning in and um, had been donating to different organizations such as the Marijuana Policy Project, who was very specific. They were not an industry association at that time, and they're still not very much focused on decriminalization of cannabis, So it's like they were starting at that level of trying to make state to state shifts in that because they knew that at least if you can change the laws around it, then it can't be weaponized against the communities that it had been for so, so long. Um, So we worked really hard on I was on the board of that for about a year and, and spent a lot of time working on that and we really did there were a lot of laws that were changed throughout that time starting really and it started in 2012 really getting the groundswell in it it's ramped drastically if you look at how many laws have changed across the united states that's impressive but it doesn't end there because it's still being used against people and and we have to keep thinking about how to give back so we continue to contribute to different organizations across different and it matters actually across different markets, because there are different equity programs you can do on a hyper-local level. And and some of those, I think, are incredibly impactful. And so some of our companies have been working on when they get the doors open and when they can start generating some revenue, they're going to be putting together microloan programs for equity applicants to try to help to support them. Because unfortunately, I think that a lot of these equity programs are they're well-intentioned. But by the time an equity applicant can get through the process and to get open, it's very expensive and very costly and the statistics around equity applicants being able to raise money are not fantastic. And so being able to come up with some of these financing programs to help to support these applicants through their path to get the doors open to start generating revenue that's that's something that we think is really important so we try to think about it on the hyper local level and then also around changing laws proposition 64 one of the things i remember amanda ryman at drug policy alliance she's now been with flocona for a while and has her own project starting she was very focused on making sure that when if in proposition 64 would have record expungement for nonviolent drug offenses related to cannabis when that passed that was something she was very passionate about and i was very much in support of that piece of of the legislation as well yeah i think
4: for from you know coming from an operator perspective especially in san francisco our facilities in san francisco we've we've been here for five years now and through the whole process of um you know transition from prop 215 to prop 64 um not only do you you know for us as an organ as a as a company, support things uh, you know, such as the Last Prisoner Project. Um, it, it is a it's a crazy dichotomy because we are considered essential, and yet we still have people who are incarcerated or still being uh, uh, punished under draconian law for cannabis. Um, the challenging thing as well, though, in, in helping to move equity forward, and all of us operators that have made this transition from Prop 215 were very vocal during the process of, yes, as much as you're going to be well-intentioned, if you don't create a roadmap, a sustainable roadmap for success, this isn't going to go anywhere, and so it, part of the challenges is for operators when there are um, when there are requirements for them to engage in equity programs in order for them to maintain licensing in a municipality, but that that infrastructure isn 't built yet, and then those operators are forced out of said municipality so they can actually keep operating the The ability for us to put funds towards that those equity operators it leaves that municipality and so you know last year in um, uh, 2019. We made significant donation to, you know, the the San Francisco Equity Working Group, and we we're trying to do everything we could to help support local equity in that way. Um, but there's still just not a lot of infrastructure that allows them then to move forward, and a lot of the equity operators in San Francisco, you know, face very significant, challenging, um, uh, a path forward, and and they're still waiting, most of them.
1: Yeah, yeah I who I know you've done a lot, also. Um, in this space
2: yeah I mean uh, equity is incredibly important to us and you know you, I think what's really fascinating right now is the consequences of the war on drugs are it's just staring us right in the face right and um, in, in some ways, cannabis equity is ahead of many other industries. This is the first of its kind. there's no other industry that has a, written into legislation, if you are someone that's been affected from the war on drugs, if you are from an area that's been overpoliced or you know uh, all the different areas of of, um, of racial injustice that's been you know happening, now there's a pathway to, to get a license to, to be permitted. Uh, we all are, there's tech. It's not that diverse, right? What does that equity piece look like in tech? What could it look like in pharma? what could what can we learn from equity in general that doesn't have to just come from from cannabis? And so that's where I think there's, there's an interesting play here of, of bringing some of that knowledge that we've done in, in, from a legislative and regulatory standpoint into other industries. Because um, it's not just cannabis that's gonna provide equity, it has to be from education, it has to be from um, you know, know-how and different ways to, to apprentice or train people, it is about uh, reinvesting in communities and, and really bridging the gap. And it, it goes from not just people being you know expunged or people that are just getting out of jail, it goes to like the, the kids in high school and middle school and all that. So there's a lot there. Um, so where we're we're helping is uh, there's a handful of things. One, a lot of the education, workshop, seminar, there's a huge knowledge gap of you know what all of us have, have learned and gone through and that as soon as you get a, a permit to the license you're, it's a whole maze uh, and uh, to, to get through uh, the second thing we're doing is you know really working with local nonprofits that are getting equity money and, and trying to help uh, provide assistance to these operators uh, and opening ourselves for, for office hours or best practices things of that nature and then something that we're also doing, which is, in, is with uh, a group of founders in Y Combinator. Uh, so there's 150 founders that have all taken a pledge to either donate money to a handful of, of different causes, to pledge our time, to mentor or help um, you know, students of color or different organizations, uh, to also hire people of color and put people of color on your board or as a board observer. Uh, we're working that with our investors on that, too, in different organizations. So there is a world here that if you believe in equity uh, and racial injustice, there's stuff you can do in your own organization right now that can help move the needle.
1: Yeah, and that's, um, you know, that is a big part to just the industry as a whole. This industry was really founded on the ethos of community and giving back. Um, and that's something that I really feel hopeful about, that we can make sure that this industry remains to be that and that there's all these companies that are starting and regardless if you're profitable or not, that you are in some way, shape or form doing the work of community, whether it's like donating your time or donating you know, financial resources. Um, you know, we speak about the social equity programs and you know, California is very much of a model state um, a lot of other states are looking at California and how we do things. And while, you know, it hasn't always been perfect, um, there's definitely been some hurdles <laughs> um, from either the, municipal, the, the local side and the state side, and obviously very much of the federal side. Um, what challenges do you guys think have affected really the growth and the progress for the industry overall?
4: How long do we have?
1: I know, I know, Chris, from an operating standpoint, you you've definitely dealt with these some of these things. But yeah, I would just say like your top top issues that have really sort of made you pivot.
4: I mean, uh, across the board, I think this speaks for everyone. It's just it's really draconian regulation. And I realized we were moving from a completely quasi gray market into a highly regulated industry essentially overnight, January 1st, 2018. A lot of us were engaged day and night with uh, both, you know, local municipalities, state level to try and get reasonable and logical regulation in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it is what it is. And one of the biggest things is is just the the overhead and the bureaucratic craziness you have to sift through. And, you know, uh, David made a great point. He's just... Yes, if, is, it's hard enough for us operators that could be, you know, if we've been in it a long time, or if we do have some some funding behind us, and we have the resources and support to even navigate that. Now, take someone who's trying to start a business, or if it's a if it's an equity applicant, and all of this is brand new, it's it's almost impossible to navigate. And you know, the state has made it incredibly challenging. This two-tier system is just it's really challenging to navigate. And I understand California as a whole gives you know, local authority um, typically trumps the state in a lot of cases and they continue this with Prop 64. It is by far the biggest challenge that we've had to deal with as operators. I,
3: I, ca- I, I can't emphasize enough everything that Chris just said. It is really painful to see how hard it has been for operators trying to function in the legal market. And it's just time and time again, I do not feel like there is a lot of rational response coming from Sacramento around this. And I don't understand. It's like, on our CCA, CCIA calls every week, it's like this was attempted to be put forth and it got held up or it was shut down. And it's like, these are very reasonable requests. I mean, so my, but I'll just say, my number one thing in California, not number one, but just to give a different answer is taxes. The tax issues in California have been insanely egregious. And what it does is it effectively raises the cost of cannabis to consumers in the legal market. And if price sensitivity, becomes a thing because of the economy, I'm worried that we're going to see more drift into the illicit market because the illicit market is very well stocked with good cannabis. It's not tested, it's not regulated, but it's it's available. And so I'm very worried about that. And then the other thing is that for me, it's been painful on the investing side to see there has been a cohort of investors who've been very kind of get rich quick mindset. And I think unfortunately, Um, They destroyed a lot of capital. They pushed capital into the hands of people who were not good shepherds of it or weren't really trying to build a lasting industry. This happens in every emerging market. You can look it up. It's like the Gardner hype cycle. We did a modified version of it for cannabis because of the legal implications that has on it, but every emerging market attracts this, but I'm hopeful that that capital has has subsided and now we're into this new wave of the lasting cannabis operators that will get funded and supported. And I just really hope that quality partners get that resource and, and that attention to continue to build. Um, those are two things that have really, to me, been inhibitors of, of lasting growth.
2: Yeah, I can add on top of that. Um, I, I think just to elaborate what Chris was saying on this two-tier system, I think we're, we're alluding to the local government, state government, uh, as, fe- as federal government as well, right? Let's throw all of that in there. And in, in California, only 30% of the cities and counties have cannabis access, right? That have commercial licensing. 70% of the state still doesn't have anything. And that's because of local, local control. And I think it was this opt-in when it should have been an opt-out. And that was a critical mistake that we, we made when formulating the, the regulations. And you know another big thing is medical became much harder to get access to. You you know in the past you got a recommendation you're good to go. Now you have to get a recommendation, then go to this local government to issue a card. It takes it takes a lot. And if you were trying to get the tax deduction, the recommendation should have been just what you needed. Uh, so it made it even harder for medical uh, people that really need to buy uh, copious amounts to actually get a discount. And you know, that basically gutted the medical market. The, we we talked about taxes, we haven't really talked about 280, right? Actual operators that are in the space don't have the ability of writing off business expenses. And then you tag on lack of access to banking, legitimate banking, or the fact that you have such um, fractured, uh, markets for instance if you're in Oakland you have a 10% tax and then if you're delivering to uh, San Diego there's an apportionment tax that you need to give to them uh, so how do you understand all of that you know how do you end up reconciling all that is, is really problematic because it costs a lot of money and time for compliance compliance there's this tax now on compliance where with metric that if you don't really have your you know your process dialed in and how you're moving things through the government has like seven years of records that you're mandated to to go back and audit you Uh, so there's this like you're sort of solving problems for today but you're also trying to make sure you're doing everything right in case down the road get hit with another um you know an audit or the inevitable you know checks and balances that are being implemented in this
1: yeah it's um you know i think that's one thing that makes it really difficult for small businesses you know to be to have a pathway or to be able to exist you know after Um, A couple of years, you know, we've seen this many times over and over again, that especially with the social equity license holders, but any small businesses is like, how can you simply afford to do business in the cannabis industry with the taxes and the compliance and all of these other layers on top of it? Um, So definitely significant amount of challenges um, in this space. And and hopefully we can start to make some changes uh, to make it easier to do business in this space. So... On that note, what is one assumption that you see people making about investing and working in the industry um, that you wish you could change? Emily,
3: I'm looking at you. (laughs) Um, I would say there's, uh, there are quite a few. Um, The first is that it's it's easy. Um, We see a lot of people splashing (laughs) in out of the space pretty quickly because they didn't really take the time to understand. I mean, everything that Chris and and who I just said, Um, but I mean, I will say like the other side to that is that I think some people have written their hand you know, written it off or washed their hands of it, kind of like this is not an investable industry. It's not an investable opportunity. And I'm here to say, to the contrary, it's quite so. You just have to do the work. And to me, it's actually on this amazing kind of edge of this new phase that I think could get really interesting because. To your point, cannabis has been deemed essential in many municipalities and markets across the United States. And not only that, but our pace of growth of this industry had been anywhere from thirty-three to 30, or 30 to 36% year over year when I got into it. They're estimating that in the next year, the pace of growth is actually at 40% year over year. So we are talking about a market that is growing and expanding extraordinarily and creating jobs. And furthermore, is just another resource that these states can look to as they are distressed because their taxes are going to be in a difficult situation. I'm definitely not saying there are tax studies where you can learn that if you tax something at the right amount, people will buy more of it and you actually do better, California. But I think that the whole thing is that it's, it's something that really is going to start to be established and have legs. And the polling coming back in terms of this issue, I would say that we're all probably comfortable saying this country is pretty divided on fundamental things such as even like is COVID real or should we wear masks but one thing the country is united on pretty well is actually on cannabis it's not as divisive of an an issue as many people might anticipate across party lines and so I'm pretty excited about it but I would just say if someone's embarking on the space the assumption that it's going to be easy is uh is not real, it's not valid. So definitely requires doing the work, but the work is worth doing.
4: Yeah, I'll follow on. It's a great way, uh, Emily, to finish or to sum it up is a lot of people think this is easy. So uh, misconceptions, the cannabis industry is flush with cash, when in fact, in California, there's a massive illiquidity issue in California. Um, That makes it incredibly challenging to operate because California is hyper competitive. It's hyper competitive amongst the brands that are already here, new brands wanting to come in. Forty million people in a state that pioneered what cannabis is—you um, know—in modern-day consumption, and that competition then is, um, you know, up against the illicit market, which is just kicking the crap out of the regulated market. And so it is not—it's not easy. And a lot of people, I, I think, it's changing obviously, um, but the notion that hey you know we're just going to throw some money in we're just going to go get licensed we're going to build the we're going to build a 100,000 square foot facility we're going to grow all these plants and we're just going to be billionaires it's not like that at all it's a grind it's tough you have to you have to really be passionate about this and i think it's one of the things with operators the three of us on here the people who are in this we are obsessed with cannabis for, for whatever reasons it is. And if you are not obsessed with this plant for the reasons you are, you're going to wash out because it's going to try and beat you da- It beats you down every day, you know, but, but we're, we're blessed to be able to do this and to be on the forefront and to be pioneers and to keep pushing because if we're not the ones who are creating what the future is going to look like, it's going to look different than what we want. And so, you know, I think that's what we're all here doing. We're, we're standing up and we're,
2: we're building what we want to see. But it's not easy.
1: Hua, you look like you were uh, about to say something. No, I was just
2: thinking how long we've been doing this, and then I think about the opportunities to what Emily is saying. Uh, you know, we're in this amazing time where this opportunity is given to us. Uh, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. I mean, there are other people that have been persecuted relentlessly for being able to do what we're doing. Uh, so, you know, keep in mind this perspective is in um, is relative to. to where we are in time and space. Uh, the fact that we're essential. essential—you uh, know, We've had so many headwinds going into this year. Uh, and finally, we're getting some tailwinds. And it's like the bright spot within COVID that's really shining on it. Um, but yeah, some misconceptions. Um, I mean, this is a long game. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. Uh, this took way longer than I anticipated, and way longer uh, the regulatory cycles you have to go through year after year. Oh, Chris was mentioning hyper-competitive. It's hyper-competitive because the supply chain is completely upside down. You had, you know, more distributors than retail licenses. I mean, what, how does that work? you right. You have a, a con, you know, a supposedly a one acre cap where you now you're just stacking licenses. And now you have 30 acres under your belt. Um, you know, stuff that didn't really go into the intent of the law, uh, you know, allow people to sidestep a bit. Um, compounding taxes, right? The fact that you have cultivation tax, excise tax, local tax, state tax, state tax taxing, all of that. They get taxes on everything. So everything gets super marked up the more layers you put in. Um, oh, as a consumer, high THC flour versus terpene rich, Come on, man. Like if you're just buying for percentages, you're not using your nose and you're not understanding, you know, all the different cannabinoids that are there. And if you're eating edibles, like full spectrum versus distillate, like, do you know what you're using or what ratios? Uh, I think there's, there's something to understand around that full spectrum feel. And then some other things that have been interesting, California is, you know, a different market than what Colorado is, than what Oklahoma is. And, If you look at some of these other things, like multi-state operators that were trying to come into California, it was really, it was pretty difficult because they were used to just doing everything themselves, right, you had this kind of like oligopoly structure in some of these other states where you're doing the grow, the cultivate, you know, the manufacturing, the distribution, you know, and the retailer. Whereas in California, in order to survive, you need to work together. Uh, Otherwise, you need to be seriously bankrolled and be able to kind of weather the storm. So I think the people that are trying to go solo had a rude awakening and the people that were able to work together and still stay nimble, uh, you know, are still here today.
1: Yeah. I would say that all of you guys are extremely resilient for, um, for as long as you guys have been in the industry. And to Chris's point to be in this industry really means that you have to be very passionate about the plant. Um, And I definitely see that with, with a lot of the folks and, who have been in the industry for for over a couple of years. Um, so, last question before we go uh, into Q and A. Um, but we, so, when you guys decided to shift your life into uh, the cannabis space, um, what sacrifices were you prepared to make, and how do you feel about that now? Anyone can start. Emily, I feel like you
3: have a lot to say topic. about it. I mean, <laughs> when I. Okay. So when we were getting into the space, there were not many, if any, really institutional investors in cannabis. And so um, I actually have been laughed out of a room. It's actually a funny story in quite a big room too. But, you know, I think you just had, like, we had to take a really hard look at the stigma that existed around it and how we would navigate that and the costs we are willing to pay to, to do this. But we, I always say it's like a light that doesn't go out when you, when you have something that strikes you and you kind of somehow know it's the thing that is going to define the work you do in your life. You can't walk away from it because if I didn't do this and saw someone else doing this and I was sitting at home doing something else and I saw a cannabis investment fund and I hadn't gone through with it. I I don't think I could have lived with myself, but, and so it's been completely worth it. But I mean, we really played through the scenario of this whole industry fails and, you know, legalization gets walked back entirely. We go back into the dark ages on it. What happens next? And I was like, okay, this is cool. I just drop out of society and, um, you know, tail between the legs with my humble, hi and move on but no i i'm kidding about that but yeah no i got a lot of linkedin notifications from my colleagues in my prior line of work telling me that if i ever needed a job because this didn't work out i could come back and talk to them but i was um we were really ready to risk it all to do it because we were that passionate about it and i think that's why we're still in it because to chris's point each day brings a new uh a hurdle that you have to get over and you really have to care about it to do it and and we were very passionate not just about the potential to see great returns but really to do so through building things and that's what keeps driving us forward but we really did look at it and say what happens if this completely goes backwards and what would that look like
1: yeah and i and i just have to say i really applaud you i remember i think it was like probably in 2015 at like a weed club event you were like you know uh, on one of the judges for some of these, um, cannabis companies. And you are one of the, one of very few women, um, mm-hmm. in the industry back then. So, so really applaud you for, for really being a leader, um, with women, uh, in, in the cannabis space as well. Yeah.
3: There, I mean, there are an amazing number of women growers that have been growing for generations and decades. Um, but yeah, in terms of being on the finance side, especially there are no,
1: mm-hmm.
3: yeah. thank you. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Chris, Hua, uh, do you guys? Um, what what were some of the sacrifices um, that you guys were prepared to make?
4: Yeah, so uh, I got in the industry in 2012. Uh, I was doing a postdoc at Stanford, and you know, I spent the better part of 10 years trying to get there. Realized this wasn't my path. Uh, quit my postdoc at Stanford. My wife and I, a few weeks later, miraculously ended up on a cannabis farm in Mendocino. We're sleeping in a tent in the redwoods next to a trim yurt and thinking we just threw our lives away, what are we doing? And so, you know, at that point, we were willing to risk it all, because was like, well, the only path is forward, so we have to go. Um, came, you know, come back here, tried launching a few cannabis companies in my kitchen, 400 square foot apartment in San Francisco, Prop 215, so don't worry, this wasn't uh, legal. Uh, you know, and tons of stuff, we just we just plowed through, because we were driven, I was obsessed with this vision of creating products for cannabis that didn't exist and where the future of cannabis is going to go. And that, you know, Emily said a lot of things that, you know, I completely resonate with. It's, it's this light, it's this fire. I know who it feels the same way. It burns inside of you. And you're just like, I'm all in. And you know what, I will, we'll figure out what happens if, if it all goes to, goes to pot. And if it doesn't work out for us, we're going to figure this out. And um, yeah, so we, we risked a lot. we, we, you know, had had no more savings. We, we were living paycheck to paycheck, and we were just trying to figure it out. And you know, you just you you plow through. And we were fortunate. We met the right people. We had the right story. We were able to to push through and get to here. Wouldn't change a thing at all. Um, and we're not out of the woods. As much as we're doing good, and and we're doing this every day, and we're going for it there's no guarantee this this could all still go sideways in different ways So you know it's every day it's something new we something my wife is she's the coo of our company so we we run the company we work. T- we live together it's this amazing thing it's something we talk about all the time because yeah for both of us failure is not an option but there's so many things out of our control and you know it's whatever you want to call it it's it's that drive it's that faith you're going to figure it out and you just we just plow through day and day and uh, yeah we wouldn't change anything and you know, we put it all on the line to get here, so, and we're happy we did.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I don't know if you, I'm, I'm Chinese, so growing up in an Asian <laughs> household, uh, cannabis and all that wasn't necessarily uh, welcomed as much. So getting into this, you know, telling my parents about it, um, they were a bit shocked, but I kind of related, like, it's herbal medicine. You, like, you have ginseng, and, like you have cannabis, and eventually that kind of worked out. Uh, which is awesome and they've been super supportive ever since. So getting your, your family in line um, was, a, was a challenge. I think the, the sacrifices were, I mean, we were prepared to go to jail if anything happened. That's kind of where we were thinking uh, at the time because you know Prop 215 was still this quasi thing that you had some protection in, but not necessarily. Um, so we needed to make sure we were doing the right thing. So we ended up going to Oaksterdam University in East Bay and learn from these amazing advocates, uh, people that have been fighting for for decades in this fight, Uh, meeting people from Normal, meeting Debbie Goldsberry and Ed Rosenthal. And and some of these names may not resonate with you, but in, in cannabis lore, like people that really sort of in the trenches fought for every inch. And coming from Philadelphia and being in San Francisco for 13 years, my first time walking into like a cannabis shop, a uh, vapor room in Lower Haight, it was like ornate wood from Jeremy Fish, like amazing jars just full of weed and you're just sticking your head in and smelling everything. And you're like, this is amazing. Meanwhile, like in Philly, I'm like in some alley, like trying to light a, you know, light a swisher sweet and trying to, you know, do all that stuff. It's just like, it's, it's incredible. Like when you think about sacrifice and you think about perspective, what you're willing to do. And I think the question that everyone needs to ask themselves is why, like why anything right in life and whatnot. And for us, at least in cannabis, something I think a lot about is how can you make the most impact in the world? Cannabis to me is it because it's that perspective change. It's that album that you listen to that, you know, brings a whole nother layer. It's the relationships you make. And I think when you look at where we are as a society, uh, plant medicines, the ability of getting access for mental wellness, the opioid epidemic, the you know alcoholism, there's just so many reasons that end up stacking. And the longer you're in this, you know, yes, we're obsessed. It's because we're obsessed because it provides so many different solutions to like obvious problems that can you know that can be a, a bridge. You know, when we look at hemp and CBD and like, you know, some, that's just one part of the plant. I mean, if we actually use it for industrial use, we can get off of plastics, right? So we're in this huge decade of, of innovation. And I think it's not, its cannabis is just that tip of the spear. I mean, you'll see uh, mushrooms and MDMA and all these other products that were are going to start coming through as you as we kind of chart the path in helping people bridge the gap on what, this plant can do for them um, so yeah i think the sacrifices are totally worth it and the people are amazing and there's no one else that can really empathize what we're talking about except for cannabis people so come join in it's like it's, the water is warm very warm.
1: <laughs> agree very much well said um, so i'm gonna move on to some q a we have uh quite a few questions here Um, So this one comes from Matt. Hi everyone, very appreciative of the discussion being facilitated and thank, thank you each for your knowledgeable participation in this event. My question is related to the cannabis industry's current thoughts about partnerships with specific research institutes like UC Berkeley or Davis and how degrees or educational directives might be achieved. As a current UC Berkeley environmental science policy and management student, I'm curious how to best matriculate my skills for the cannabis industry. Any thoughts, Chris?
4: (laughs) Yeah, it's, I, so industry is full spectrum here. There's, there's job types and there's skill sets needed for everything. I think one of the most important things in the industry too is, you know what, if, if you're intelligent and you're motivated and you have a skill set, um, you know, it's like, it's almost any startup. Yes, a lot these companies were making revenue, things like that. But this is still very much startup culture. And I think that that's kind of the best attitude to take into it. These are chaotic environments, things are changing, they move quickly, you need to be nimble. And, you know, if, if that sounds like it's a fun thing for you, then yeah, I think, you know, you can give it a shot and more and more companies are bringing on people where they need, they need this uh, institutionalized knowledge of, yeah, do you know science? Do you understand management? Do you understand how to do these things now? How do we put these into the context of, of, uh, of cannabis? And so, you know, you, you want, you probably look for jobs that, you know, whether that's cultivators or manufacturers um, there, more and more of them are bringing scientists on staff and things like that. Or there's the other side. If you want to do the regulatory, the government I think is always, um, is always hiring for it. And they need, they need good people in there right now.
1: Another question comes from Alan, which market, that, which market has legalized cannabis is doing the best job nurturing in the industry. Is there a model we can point to positively in, to positively influence Sacramento?
3: I I don't, I mean, I don't think anyone's cracked the code on this and every market's had their pain points for different reasons. Um, Like if you take Colorado, Colorado's done pretty well. um, Mm -hmm. But there have been issues like they hadn't had delivery this whole time, really. And they didn't have consumption lounges, which is, by the way, a very important aspect to make to democratizing access to cannabis safely because it it provides safe places to consume it. If you, for example, live in an apartment building where the landlords have outlawed the, or have said you can't use, you can't smoke anything, period, end of discussion. It could be cannabis, could be cigarettes, but um, having that space to have consumption has been really important for people to have access to it safely um, both in terms of, you know, being in a controlled and comfortable space, but also from, I'll say it, po- potential police officers who might try to weaponize ag- that against certain communities. And so, I think it's really something that I don't think a state has has nailed it yet. But I'm just going to say um, that C- Colorado's been a little bit better, and they did try to. Who I think I'm right about this, but they really did try to preserve their medical program pretty well for quite a long time. And it gave, there were benefits in terms of pricing, access to more potent products for those who are really using it for medical purposes who do need those really much higher dosage products. Um, So that was something that was really important. Um, Oregon seems like it's finding its footing, but they definitely, it was challenging because Gosh, I could talk about every state and and what went well and what didn't go well. But I don't know, guys, do you think there's a a model yet? Yeah,
2: well, I I think what's interesting is we're looking at this from a lens of this is state regulated. If you look at how our supply chains work in other industries, take agriculture, for example. California grows, distributes, everyone else just sells it. Right. And if we were really looking at this from a national strategy, you're not going to stage up grows in Boston when it's like costs that much energy to power indoor versus growing a lot of it in, in California and shipping it over and then they can distribute themselves. Uh, so I think if we're able to specialize a bit more. We'd be able to get way more jobs because our, we can do it by region. Um, but that fact of the matter is when you add cannabis, it's an ecosystem play. You put, uh, licenses in people's hands, you got real estate, you got lawyers, you got accountants, you got their compliance staff, you got like the packaging people, you got designers, web people, marketing. Yeah, it's it's a whole thing. And if what's nice is if you do it right and you allow that ownership to be local, that money will funnel back into the community. But if you do it where you're owned by a subsidiary and that money is getting funneled to Canada, it really doesn't help that, that you know, group. Um, but there's a lot of upside still in, in how this is going. And it's bi- definitely one of the biggest job creators. And more mm. and more people are looking for quality people. And what I would say to you is in a year from now, if you were to get in now, you could be an expert if you just looked at that. And uh, this thing is moving that quickly and needs quality people. It has many people on, his, on our side and Seesaw.
1: So that's um we have room, for, we have one more question, but, and then and I picked this one because I think it's a good way to end um, this conversation. Um, so one question comes, what can we, the people do with our dollar to support cannabis companies who build with the community in mind? And I'll, I mean, I'll just say, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm we're going to put, and I think we should put in the chat is um There's been one thing is to really support cannabis companies. There's been a lot of cannabis companies more recently that were affected by the looting from all of the riots, a ton of of vandalism and robbery that happened during that time. And so um, there's many dispensaries and many cannabis companies who are suffering at this moment um, because they had everything taken. So if you go to the chat feature, if you want to donate, you can help support those cannabis companies. Um, by donating to, to this benefit. But if anybody else has um, other, I know I, I feel like all of you have guys have been really sort of putting what you guys do at the forefront of, of the community in mind. Um, so I think that's super important to know as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll i add one thought here is uh, there is a, an equity certification symbol that's being distributed with equity operators. And you know, then you know it's a verified true equity person. That is is putting this, uh, you know, heart and soul into it. Um, so just requesting those products is a, definitely an easy move, and you know that symbol is probably going to use more and more. And you know, I would add to that though, like there's women operators, uh, people of color. I mean, there's small craft. You know, I think anything when you look at the the, the smaller groups, yeah, that's a huge 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 boost. Um,
4: and. I would say in line with that because it, it can be challenging to identify which companies are either minority owned or um, equity operators. Um, you know, there are there are retail shops that highlight they may have special shelves where they, they're highlighting what's made locally, what's in the community. You know, I, I always say support those shops as much as possible because they're actually they're actually putting putting it on display and letting you know and, and making and making the consumer aware that yeah, these these are made with you know, through these programs, these are made locally, keep the money in uh, locally. So try and identify those shops. It, it can be a challenge. So there's going to be some legwork on your part, but um, it's definitely worth it and needed.
3: I agree with that, seeking out the platforms that foster the exposure to these smaller brands and companies and and yeah, there's that's really important because that's the platform right now to learn and I think that, and to engage in those companies. And I think that, um, yeah, these points are exactly right. Vote with your dollars. like Support the legal market because there are a lot of people who pay a heavy price to participate in this legal market when it could be just as easy to drop out and go to the illicit market. And I think that we have to keep pushing this forward as a legal regulated market so that we can keep having it.
1: All right. Well, I think that concludes um, our, our uh, discussion today.
2: Cool. Thanks for having us. This is fun. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Yeah. Thanks, guys. That was great. Thanks for everyone
0: joining. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next Conversations podcast coming soon. If you have a story that needs to be shared, we'd love to hear from you. For more information on shack 15 and our community, you can email info at shack15.com, connect with us on Instagram, or visit our website, at shack15.com.